I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. The people need to know what is going on with Mahalia at this moment. Okay. (laughs) Y'all, 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 let me tell you what I'm looking at. Okay. Because, you know, we have seen all forms of Mahalia, but today Mahalia Mm -hmm. is, I mean, she's just giving me Mahalia. Okay. She is big and fluffy and proud and just in a full on Angela Davis Afro situation. That was the name that popped up for me too. Okay. Okay, cool. Cool. But cool. but but let me share with, with our audience how this evolved. So I have not had Mahalia worn straight since 2018, I believe. Okay. okay. And so for a good trim, I like to do it with my hair like blow dried because okay. curl cuts, it's hard to get all of the ends evenly. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what, Renee, go ahead and run that flat iron through. Let's just see what wow. can I be working with. But how did you feel? Did you like feel like not you? No. In fact, I was. <laughs> In fact, I was feeling myself. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how I felt. <laughs> I was actually a little bit worried. Like, you know, after you straighten your hair for the first time that you start to think it's prettier like this. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. What, no, I didn't feel any of that. What did Amanda say when she saw it? <laughs> so I, had, you know, I, I have you, to know what the best friend say. You I'm already best, know. So the what thing did is, best friend say? So I had hit her up the day before. I was like, should I do the silk press? And her first question was, how humid is it outside? <laughs> oh yeah, that is true. Because when you haven't been straightening your hair mm-hmm. and then you have the nerve to try to straighten it, oh, mother nature will intervene. Yeah. So you see where this is going. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, it ain't that bad. Um, so she's like, yeah, I bet. Let's see how long it is. So she was actually coming in town flying from Chicago to Houston for my birthday. Okay. And so I was going to like get a group together to go out in Houston Friday night. You know, it's still COVID. So we're just like, let's just hit the rooftop bars early. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah, girl. Yeah. So my hair went from like Kerry Washington scandal, silk press (laughs) to Angela Davis Within the span of seven minutes, I kid you not. Oh my God. Like, I'm not going to lie. I was a little upset. I was a little upset as I like felt it happening. And then I looked in the mirror and I was just like, all right. Is, so is what I'm looking at, is this the, the, the post mm-hmm. rooftop? Really? Yeah. It wow. actually was a little bit bigger. I've been sleeping on it, obviously, but. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, Mahalia clearly was looking to be curly. <laughs> Exactly. She's like, like, I don't want this. She's like, yeah. She's like, all right, we had our fun. We're done. (laughs) Back back to business. But it is still retain like some of the length because after you blow dry it, it doesn't like shrink, shrink. Yeah. Um, But I actually take it as a sign of of health, actually. 
Right. Like when your like when your hair is damaged and you straightened it, it doesn't revert back to its curl pattern very easily. Right. right. So I was just like, go ahead, Mahalia. I ain't even mad at you no more. Like, no, do what you do. What you do. Exactly. Do what you do. That's the beauty of black hair. You can just. I'm, I'm here for it. It's so versatile. Conte, ain't that the yeah. truth? Mm-hmm. Um, hey, have you ever heard of a book called The Book of Delights? I have not. Oh, gosh. Okay. So the reason I bring up The Book of Delights is because, as you know, I've recently finished The Color of Law. Mm-hmm. And then after the color of law, um, I listened to the Will Smith book, which I, I kind of dug, but, but then I, I, um, was really excited when, um, Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 book came out. Yes. Jumped right on that, started listening to it. However, it is, it is very well done. It is so good. But, but the same thing that was happening to me with the color of law is happening here where I am feeling deep moral and just existential distress about what was what happened to our people. I mean, it's just like getting punched in the jaw and then you turn and you're like, dang, and you start like wiping off your face and you get punched in the other <laughs> jaw. But the panacea, my friend, mm. is the book of delights by okay. Ross Gay. O-M expletive G. Gay is a poet and he decided to spend a year starting on, I think his birthday, writing an essay every single day about an observation in his world that delighted him Mm. from the extraordinary to the ordinary to the most mundane. And there are these little short essays and I'm listening to him narrate it. The book is a delight. The kinds of things that he describes, like, for example, this is my favorite one so far. His delight was that somebody was driving down the street with their window open and they were playing Everybody loves the sunshine. Oh, I love that song. I know, right? And he described like the synth and how he says, you know, folks get down in the sunshine. Folks get brown in the sunshine. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves the sunshine. And I was like, man. And he just described that him hearing that car go by with that playing out of the window was a delight. Mm. And, and it's it's like filled with things like that, like watching a, a butterfly light onto a pole in a neighborhood in an unexpected place, a delight. So when I get overwhelmed by 1619 and people like brutally handling formerly enslaved people, I just go over to the book of delights and I swear it is like I get a big shot in the arm. Mm. It's a new strategy. So I think, I think heavy books, I'm going to try to like balance them with something that is the book of delights equivalent. I am, I am absolutely in love with this book. And it is literally him reflecting on the extraordinary, like slivers of ordinary life. It is, it is so beautiful and it's making me so happy. It's, oh. it's, it's a delight. Okay. Yeah. It's a delight. I'm, I'm loving it. Well, okay. we, we done talked about my hair multiple times. I <laughs> uh, got some excellent book recommendations and also some great yes. advice on how to balance some of the, the heavy truths with the lighter delights of life. So for all my greedy doc stands, it's your week. <laughs> hey, can I give one sidebar? You know, if somebody asked me this, do we always know exactly what the story is that somebody is about to tell us? And I will tell you that the majority of the time, we kind of don't really know. Um, It's as, you know, as organic as it sounds. I think, I mean, 
and I just I, that was just worth sharing. So, Absolutely, yeah. I've gotten that question too. So I'm glad that we kind of re reframe that just so folks know. The what is emotion? Mm-hmm. Okay, emotion. emotion. You know, as in, I get so emotional, baby, like that. Well, that's emotional. I'm sorry. Oh, it's just emotion that's taken. Yeah, like okay. That. Yeah, I got that. I got the second okay. one. Okay. I'm sorry. You didn't know the first one. That was Whitney Houston, but maybe because I don't sound like Whitney. But anywho, <laughs> <laughs> emotion, emotion. Yeah. I am. I'm here for it. So um, we're gonna go back to when I was an assistant professor. You know, back when I was uh, around your age. <laughs> 30-ish. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I had been um, charged with giving primary care grand rounds. And uh, I had not been on faculty that long, but definitely it had been, it had been a short enough period where every time I had to give a formal lecture, it created a lot of anxiety for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I would over-prepare. I would be really, really pressed about it. And And also I didn't really have a lot up my sleeve, you know, so it wasn't like I had a whole bunch of canned lectures that I could just whip out. Anytime somebody asked me to give a lecture, I was starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had been asked to give primary care grand rounds and told I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. Mm. Now, back, back at this point, this was, (laughs) I was not quite as um, ambitious as I am sometimes now giving talks, but um, I still was me and I had, you know, stories and things in my head and ways that I wish that, you know, we could teach certain things and um, cared a lot about underserved populations and humanizing people. And so I decided that I would give a talk um, called The Other Side of Crack Cocaine. Mm. Um, Because we have in in Atlanta, in particular, crack cocaine has really impacted um, a lot of our our patient population and low-income communities. And we see a lot of the aftermath of crack cocaine, both, you know, medically and economically in our, in our healthcare system. Yeah. So I realized though, that with, with crack cocaine, people often have these ideas about what it's like and who's on it and what it does to people and how we got here and all that. So I just, I went hard at this talk. I mean, I did my homework. I looked into all the historical aspect of crack and how it's made and how this and how that. And, and then I set out to like talk to patients and ask people who um, endorsed using crack cocaine. They asked them questions and got all of this really, really great information and put together this talk that I was really extremely proud of. Mm. And so um, I'm talking to my dad on the phone one day and I'm telling him about this talk that I'm about to give. I'm like, oh man, I'm about to give this talk. It's about crack, blah, blah, blah. And my dad says, oh, you should talk to your uncle Woody. And I say, Oh, okay. Um, he said, Oh, I bet you he's real. He's real open about, you know, his life. He probably tell you a whole bunch of stuff. And so my uncle Woody is my father's younger brother. Like my father, um, he, he went to Tuskegee. He followed my dad to Tuskegee was Mm. an absolute rock star. Like he was our favorite uncle growing up and everything. Unfortunately, Substance abuse deeply impacted his life and pretty much changed everything for him. Dang. But, you know, at the time that I was telling my dad this, my uncle was in a process of recovery at that time. And he's just always been a real transparent dude, my uncle Woody and dad cool. And my dad was like, yeah, I'll ask Woody if he'll talk to you. And I, and I, and I'll be clear that I'm, I'm saying his name because he's been very open about this. And I think he deeply appreciates the opportunity to teach people things from, from his lived experiences. And so. Mm-hmm. 
Shout out to Uncle Woody for that. Yes, thank you. So, yeah, so I get on the phone with Uncle Woody and I mean, he is breaking it down. He's like, if it is to be tried, I have tried it. If it is to be smoked, I have smoked it. If it is to be snorted, I have snorted it. I just don't like needles, but everything else I've done it. And so he started to talk about crack and he was telling me about how crack um, was so unique about crack is that it's it's a very lonely and isolating drug. It, um, it causes you to not want to share. So you don't really want to be in community. And a lot of, you know, he said a lot of drug use is, com- is communal. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even things like heroin and marijuana and stuff like yeah. that, people deal together, but yeah. he said, you know, you walk into a crack den, it's people sitting by themselves using, they don't want to share. And then it causes your family to fear you. And so it is just the loneliest, most isolating addiction that you could have. It's he, and he just kept describing it that way. And you reach a point where you don't even realize how much you've isolated yourself. And then you come out of the fog and try to talk to people and people are like afraid of you. Mm. And so it was really powerful. And he explained that, you know, yeah, on TV, they make it seem like you take a hit of crack and then all of a sudden you're a zombie and you're hooked. He said, no, you know, no, most people, it kind of starts slow and it kind of becomes like a slow train wreck. And then eventually they go from a little bit of crack in something to going to just only smoking the crack. Right. So I was like, wow. So he's telling me all this stuff. I'm asking him all sorts of questions. And it was really powerful. And so he was like, please give him the truth. Tell my story. I want I want you to teach people because people think they know stuff, but you don't know until you have been there. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm college educated and no, I'm not somebody who didn't grow up in a loving household. My parents loved me. I'm the, I grew up in the same house your daddy grew up in and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, wow, deeply appreciative. And I fold his part into my talk as sort of like the final um, story. So after mm-hmm. giving the historical perspective about crack and crack cocaine, I moved into individual stories of patients and what they said and how they described it. And really my goal was just to humanize yeah. you know, those who use crack cocaine. Exactly. Right? Um, so, you know, I had practiced this talk a million times and as I'm giving the talk and I get to the part about my uncle, I'm talking about, you know, what he said and I'm kind of explaining everything. And, and then I turn the slide over and I just have a picture that's filling the entire slide. Mm-hmm. It is the picture from my parents' wedding day. It's a black and white picture. My mother and my father are standing there young and cherubic looking and hopeful. My grandparents, my paternal grandparents are standing there. My maternal grandparents are standing there. And then um, the witness was my uncle Woody, who at the time was a college student at Tuskegee Mm. and he was handsome and he was in a suit and he was looking so easygoing and smiling. And it was just like the whole world was ahead of him to win. And I looked at that picture projected on that screen and the whole room was full of a whole auditorium full of people. And I tried to open my mouth to speak and nothing came out of my mouth. Like, like it makes me emotional to even tell you now. Mm. Um, I'm a mother. And honestly, I had kind of set out to try to help people to humanize the people who are impacted by crack cocaine. And I don't think I had fully appreciated it until that very moment. Mm. Because I, all along, I just thought it was cool that my uncle Woody was telling me all this. Oh, this is cool. But 
the way that my, my grandmother was so hurt, mm. the way it felt when like we would all be together and people would hide their bags and all that stuff. How, when my grandmother passed away, my sister was driving around trying to find my uncle so to notify him. It was, it, w- it was crazy. So I started to cry in the middle of my lecture. Oh, Lord. Straight up, like, I started crying. I couldn't talk. I was crying. And, I, and that had never happened to me. See, at this point, everybody who has ever heard me speak somewhere, like, more than one time has probably heard me cry. Yep. But I was mortified. I was mm-hmm. absolutely mortified. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't that I was surprised, but it. it was that I was embarrassed that I started crying and I, and I was trying to get it together. And the more I tried, the, the, the worse it got. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it, that picture being up there like that, that's what brought me to tears. Cause I can even imagine what it looked like. I, I just, I just couldn't pull it together. And I just finally just stopped and stood still and took a few deep breaths. And I went to the next slide and, and then I opened my eyes and people were kind. Mm. They were weeping. Some were just looking, they were quiet. They were reflective. They were respectful. They were okay. Wow. They were just fine. That was a defining moment for me as a clinician educator. Because I thought to myself, my favorite uncle ruining his life or having his life ruined. Let me fix that. By crack cocaine, which in itself is a complicated thing as you think about the black community in the Southern United States. Yep. That's something to cry about. Yes. That's something to cry about. What I was trying to do for the audience mm-hmm. happened to me in a way that was unexpected. Yeah. And I guess my point is, is that I, I think, I think I just, since that point, I just was like, we have to normalize emotion. We just have to, you know, there's all these rules like, oh, you know, you got to get it together and, you know, you can't be, and I'm not even talking about the gendered stuff that, you mm-hmm. know, happens to boys growing up. I'm just talking about period in medicine, you know we like inherently like start to worry about people if they, oh if they show emotion. Yes. Okay? Oh my God. <laughs> Look, no, I'm fine. My super awesome, brilliant college educated uncle with a family and a, the most beautiful house and car I've ever seen ever is now somewhere living off of whatever he can live off of mm-hmm. because of this. And that, it, that makes me sad. Yes. And I, and sorry, not sorry. I'm going to cry about it. Absolutely. The the point that you made around like worrying about people who are too emotional, that 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 struck me to my core actually. Cuz I remember when I was a early second year resident, the, like the the time where you transitioned from being, you know, an intern to being in charge of the team and kind of having to not only manage your patients but manage your uh, interns and, and medical students who were kind of looking to you to set the tone. Mm-hmm. And I had an intern who was very emotional mm-hmm. and who didn't hide the fact that they cried about things that made them sad. And I was the one who was just like, yo, I need you to pull it together. Like folks are worried about you. Like, let's just, you want me to take some stuff off your to-do list. 
and they they were perfectly fine. Mm. In fact, they they did not change, and they went on to be an incredibly skilled clinician. In fact, I I called this colleague for advice when my grandmother was passing mm. on on how to engage my family. Mm. Yeah, I I think that there's um, there's some this this space where it's the hidden curriculum, right? Where mm-hmm. I don't ever recall anybody putting up on a wall, do not cry in front of people. Don't cry. I, I don't remember that being explicit, mm-hmm. but I definitely remember it being a lesson that I learned that mm-hmm. people who were stoic, the people who could have like an end of life conversation or talk to somebody about something heavy and keep their wits about them and mm-hmm you know, go on to the next patient, on to the next patient who we got next or, or crack a joke or bite into, you know, a pierogi or whatever the heck in between, like, there's no big deal. That was never me. That was never me. But in residency, I, I worked really hard to make that me. So I would be Mm -hmm. inside of bathroom stalls or in, in stairwells trying to get it together. Yeah. So that nobody would catch me doing what I did in front of that whole room full of people. Now, now, I don't want you to be crying so much in front of your patient that they turn to console you. <laughs> but mm-hmm. even in that, that moment, there is something to be said about the fellowship of suffering. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I just think we need to normalize emotion. And um, that's why I just, yeah, I unapologetically let it all out. Yes. Well, those of us who, who love you know this very intimately. But to state it out loud, normalizing emotion, I would say the expanse of emotion. We're, we're all good for folks who want to be angry. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Ooh, that's a word right there. Yeah. To rage and throw things or talk down, vent frustration. But to express sadness, when we see sad things all the time, mm. it, it has to be normalized. Yeah. I think that's maybe what I love about the book of delight. He, he talks a lot about even delight as an emotion, just mm-hmm. being delighted. And um, I think reading about somebody being delighted is allowing me to see more things that delight me. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's one of those things like a muscle, right? I think that yeah. once you, once you get those um, emotions nice and lubricated and, and stretched out, they just do what they do, you know? Yep. Like Mahalia, you know, <laughs> when she step out in some humidity, she's just going to do what she does. <laughs> exactly. And you can get frustrated, try to scale it back, or you just, just let it go. You can try to reel it in mm-hmm. or you can just rock with it. Yes. And yeah. everybody around you will, the real ones will appreciate it. Yeah. And you know, if somebody doesn't like it, I mean, too bad. <laughs> yeah and to be clear there are people who are not criers for an an emotion for them looks a lot of ways I'm I'm married to somebody like that but but feeling it and and trusting those individuals to hold space with you you don't have to be a person who cries to be in the space with me if the way that I'm showing emotion looks this way Mm -hmm. I need you to do you and I will not be like, come on, cry. 
Yeah, as, as, as someone who is still learning to feel comfortable crying in front of others, I appreciate <laughs> that sentiment. But I, I, I realize how much I kind of, you know, done the same thing, like created this kind of wall around my emotions as, as a resident. I think I, I can remember two times total that I cried in residency, neither of which were in public. Um, I know. And I used to be proud of that fact. <laughs> and then I finished and started undoing some of that stuff that I had done to myself. And now I cry all the time. Yeah. I so. crying in residency, but not in front of anybody. No, that was, <laughs> I think that probably was my real first, like straight up public cry that, that, that right there. And it's oh. like, I've cried up in ground rounds, all kinds of, do you know, I cried, I, I cried on the ACP plenary this year. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> this, is, this is a moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a little cute cry though. It wasn't an ugly cry. It was kind of right? like, yeah, let's start to little, differentiate which ones we yeah, actually doing. The little, the little baby voice break where you kind of <laughs> get a little, little catch in your throat. Yeah. It was restrained, but you know, yeah, but I'm like, how are you gonna have Fauci on the first day and then this lady on the next day who start crying? <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. No, we're not sorry. You, my friend, are one of my delights. If I had a book of delights, you would have a chapter. It would be Ashley and Mahalia mm. and all things adjacent. Yes. It goes without saying, just, you know, having the space with a mentor that I admire and look up to, to be able to cultivate a friendship and, and show up authentically and, and share stories of our own lessons learned, sometimes the hard ones. Yep. Along with the vulnerability, there's not a day that passes that I am not in awe of how lucky I am to have this and have you. Say word. Say word. I receive that and I boomerang it right back at you, sis. Taken. Well, I love you, sis. I know you got big things popping out there in H-Town before you return. Yeah, big things popping and not just my hair. But <laughs> got some, some nephews to go wrangle. So I love you too, sis. All right, holla. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.